0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: What we think of as our great political divide between the left and the right has been a divide between right liberalism and left liberalism, with the emphasis being what's the best means of achieving this end of the liberated individual.
2: Welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, the Ezra Klein Show, which is now twice a week. The Weeds, by the way, my other podcast is three times a week through the midterms. So much podcasting, if that's what you're into, and you're here. It is what you're into. Just also real quick, our season one on Netflix has just wrapped up, but the final episode, y'all, it's about how sound becomes music in the brain. It features this really incredible story of one of my favorite DJs, Toki Monster, who during a brain surgery, lost the ability to hear sound as music and and what that was like and what it took to get it back. It is awesome, awesome episode, but also there are 20 of them now. So if you've not checked out Explained on Netflix, you really should. It is such a cool project. All right. The show today, we got Patrick Deneen. Which I've been excited about. I've been talking about this guy on the show occasionally for a while. Dineen is a political theorist at Notre Dame. His book is called Why Liberalism Failed. And it's been over the past couple of years a, a slow building sensation, particularly on the right. Ross had called him a modern Jeremiah. David Brooks said it, it's going to be one of these books that has a cult following. But now even Barack Obama is putting it on his summer reading list. I want to say before we get into it, the liberalism Deneen attacks, it's not liberalism of the American left. It's not like Hillary Clinton liberalism. The liberalism he's attacking is a liberalism that elevates individualism above all else, above place and family and nature and community. And he sees both the left and the right as allies in this. His big argument, and I'm quoting him here, is that liberalism has failed not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. It has failed because it has succeeded. We're in this age right now where a lot of people say they've lost faith in our political order, but but really they, they they just want to make these small tweaks and changes a little bit here, a little bit there. And I think it's useful in that to hear a true radical critic like Deneen to be forced to ask yourself whether you really think liberalism has failed, whether you really think something has gone deeply awry in our society that we're built on a corrupt foundation or whether hearing the case for its failure makes you more appreciative of its actual success. Um, as always, you can email me at isreclineshowbox.com, tell me whether I have failed or, or, or maybe whether I've succeeded. <laughs> you can also tell me who'd have on the show next. All that said, here is Patrick Deneen. Patrick Deneen, welcome, w- welcome back to the podcast, to the podcast. It's a, it's a weird limbo we're in.
1: It's a pleasure to be back with you, although (laughs) apparently our first conversation was lost in limbo, but uh, I'm happy to have it again. A practice run. This one's going to be
2: so much better. What did you think when you found out that uh, former President Barack Obama was
1: reading a book by you called Why Liberalism Failed? Well, it uh, uh, came as a bit of a shock and a surprise, but uh, what was the old line? Uh, I felt a tingling in my leg, (laughs) which was – it's exciting to know uh, former presidents uh, reading one's book as his his summer reading and – you know, he, he expressed, it was a very brief uh, description, but he he stated on the one hand, he thought I had a valuable analysis, particularly of uh, of an age of income inequality and social inequality, uh, but that he disagreed with a number of my conclusions. So, I do hope the occasion will come about where we might discuss those at some point. He's not too far away from uh, South Bend. If he, having read the book, if he did not disagree with some of the conclusions, I'd be I'd be quite confused. <laughs> well, I mean, the conclusions such as they are weren't, uh, that's been one of the critiques of the book, which I don't really spell much out in a sense so I'd be curious to know what in particular he disagreed with well let's start with the, the core analysis um, make the case to me that liberalism
2: has failed when when you say that what do you mean
1: well the analysis was really a uh, discussion of how a political philosophy has been realized. And as it's been more perfectly realized, it's been shown, I think, uh, increasingly shown to be really unsustainable, not to conform in some ways to the reality uh, of what it is to be a human being. It's premised on the kind of core belief that human beings in their purest natural form or their ideal form are liberated, autonomous, freely choosing, self-making individuals And while this was only a theory at the time it was written 500 years ago or more, uh, we've recreated the world in many ways uh, in order to realize this human being. And it's required a massive apparatus of both state and economics and a transformation of society as a whole. And I think many of the kind of the stress, the stresses that our political and economic system are now in are pretty much a direct result of this remaking of the world. And, and one of these things which I didn't anticipate at the time I was writing the book was this kind of reaction we're seeing today across the world against, you know, sort of advanced liberalism as a regime in which people feel they no longer control either the state or the economy uh, and a kind of populist demand uh, for a kind of reassertion of, of control over both of those domains. So the book in some ways has gotten a lot more notice than I anticipated because in some ways, my analysis has been outstripped by what's been going on politically, but uh, the analysis wasn't about a particular moment, but really about a kind of internal logic of liberalism. We should talk a little bit about what liberalism means in this context because I
2: think a lot of listeners will be familiar with it as describing one side of a political debate, right? There's liberalism and there's conservatism, but you're describing a liberalism that is – It's almost more of an individualism. Um, It's one that encompasses both the left and the right in this country and it's much more of a consensus that operates everywhere in our politics completely simultaneously uh, than it is – you know, what I think we
1: think of as, a, as our traditional left-right divide. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, no, I really mean the, uh, the philosophy of liberalism, philosophical liberalism, and what we think of as our great political divide uh, between the left and the right, at least until very recent years, has been a divide between sort of right liberalism and left liberalism, with the emphasis being uh, what's the best means of achieving this end of the liberated individual, with the right typically arguing it's the market. Allow the market to operate in a realm of relative autonomy, relatively uh, free of restrictions and regulation, and people will, by their own choice and the the accumulation of those individual choices, figure out, in some ways, what's the best way of life for them. And with the left, it's been, uh, the emphasis has been on the state as the provider for the means particularly of equal opportunity that allows people, again, to pursue their ends largely through the impersonal medium of the state. And what both of these mechanisms really effectively do is to depersonalize Um, the relationship of citizens to one another. They both operate as sort of depersonalized mechanisms that relieve us of the duty of having actual obligations and duties to each other. So I'm a critic of both the left and the right. And pretty predictably, the book has been severely criticized on the right for being too critical of the market and on the left for being too critical of sort of lifestyle liberation, but uh, but I have both in my sights.
2: Well, what's interesting and what I think is relatively radical about the book, given the way we think of these things uh, in general, is the argument that there's a, a symbiotic relationship. You write that individualism is not the alternative to statism, but it's very cause. And, and you sort of posit – it's almost like a relay race between the two of them where the the right gets power and creates a market that requires control. So people call in the state and the state gets more power and then people call back in more of the market and that – In each procession, both are left bigger than they were before and so it feels like to those of us living in it that there is a conflict between the left and the right and there is. There is a a legitimate conflict playing out at all times but that viewed from this other perspective, viewed from outside the system, what you're seeing is a – form of a cooperation actually between the left and the right, that they, they they're both end up serving the purposes of this broader kind of historical liberalism that um, needs, you know, needs the two of them to keep creating the conditions for the, for the other side to keep growing in order for the entire thing to keep growing. and, and That's a very different way of understanding the, what, what is happening
1: in our politics in an ongoing way. Yeah, you've actually stated um, probably better than I could really one of the core arguments of the book, which is precisely this kind of mutually reinforcing symbiotic relationship that we sort of focus all of our attention on the ongoing battles between the left and the right without ever really noticing how they are kind of more deeply motivated and animated by a kind of common project. And you describe this well, that you know, one of the effects of this is the advance of one side calls forth a kind of reaction from the other side, which ends up not actually changing this trajectory, but um, extending it. Uh, You know, one example of this, and this was, you know, this is an analysis that's fairly old, but it's always worth remembering in this context. This is uh, arguments made by Christopher Lash back in the 1990s, which uh, the at the very moment when, you know, someone like Ronald Reagan was arguing for the defense of family values, he was also arguing for, you know, the opening of and, you know, could sort of completely free market uh, without ever really reflecting on the ways in which this kind of cowboy marketplace is actually destabilizing to families and destabilizing to the kind of communities in which families typically flourish. And that's the kind of analysis that I think is helpful. And in elucidating what I think is the deeper symbiosis between these two apparently opposite sides.
2: So I wanted to lay that out because to me, there's there are these two arguments happening in the book. And one I think is quite persuasive and the other uh, I, I need some convincing on. So I almost feel you could separate the book into why liberalism, right? And that's kind of the conversation we've been having, like how is liberalism? What What is it? How is it advancing? And then there's this issue of failed, and we're certainly living in a pessimistic time, a time of populist backlash in different countries. And yet the, the argument for failure, it requires it to be tested against something. So make the argument for failure itself. When, when I look at this system that is liberalism – why should I not take, say, the Steven Pinker view that it has created more total human flourishing and growth and prosperity than ever before? And actually, the problem is that we just don't appreciate the age we live in enough. That the problem is that we're looking at it through these grim glasses, um, and that there's no, you know, there's always things that could be better. But but failure is quite a brand to apply to something that. Uh, you know, it's created a world with a lot less infant mortality and a lot more, you know, individual choice and a lot more political and personal freedom and a lot more prosperity than any that we've seen before.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, all of these are, you know, statistically uh, incontrovertible, and uh, and you know, Pinker has been posed as one of the counterpoints of my own argument. I don't know if you saw; you might have seen uh, Andrew Sullivan's juxtaposing of our two books, and which I greatly appreciated because. Sullivan is not someone I would typically think about as a kind of ally necessarily of my view. And yet, uh, having read those two books, I suspect back to back, he concluded that uh, while Pinker was sort of right about the statistics, he wasn't right about the sort of the deeper sources of both contemporary anxiety and the deepest sources of human satisfaction. It's clear that human beings need and require basic material goods to survive and even to flourish. And uh, and 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 that's certainly the case, and we can we can take great joy and satisfaction in the increase, particularly in the parts of the world that have experienced such great poverty for so very long. On the other hand, it's particularly in the in the world's advanced liberal democracies, in the in the economies that produce uh, this kind of absolute proliferation, constant acceleration of material goods, where I think we're seeing a kind of backlash that's not um, against materialism per se, although that's part of it, but I think derives from a kind of deeper dissatisfaction that material goods and the kind of measurable forms of prosperity don't amount to the deepest forms of human satisfaction. If one thinks about what are the sources of the deepest forms of human satisfaction, it tends to be relationships friendships, family, children, a kind of belief that you leave a legacy, that you will be remembered, that your life mattered. And this is one of the things that, that liberalism actually disassembles, uh, or th- these aspects of life tend to be disassembled under liberalism. The very things that we praise about liberalism have these consequences that undermine these deeper sources of human satisfaction. And as a result, what we're seeing in advanced liberal democracies is this kind of deep existential kind of Oddly enough, a kind of despair uh, that we're seeing manifested in a whole bunch of other statistics, Uh, the opioid crisis being certainly one of those, or this incredible rise of suicides across Western liberal democracies. We tend not to be able to put these two kinds of phenomena together, but I think if we think more deeply about the kind of sources of human satisfaction as not being merely satisfied by uh, the kinds of measures that that Pinker brings to bear, that um, we, have to, we have to in some ways ask a kind of very ancient question, which is uh, when is enough enough and what is required for the sustenance of those forms of life that do really undergird uh, the good and flourishing human life? So I think the Buddhist perspective on this, to, to take it from that angle, would
2: say something like, the human state is to suffer, that we and, – and I've been very influenced here by Robert Wright's book, um, Why Buddhism is Right. Uh, he was on this podcast a while back if people want to go check out that discussion. But one of the things he says – because he kind of takes a, an evolutionary angle on Buddhism and says that it understood something profound about how the human mind has evolved and that that is why it is true. And his argument is that human beings evolved to be these dissatisfaction machines – that it would not be evolutionarily all that advantageous to have a good meal and then just be good on meals. <laughs> it would not be uh, all that advantageous to get enough and say that's enough. And so in a pretty deep way, our hardware, uh, our, our, our kind of human hardware, is constantly trying to get us to ask for more. Um, whatever we have, we adapt to, and then we want more. We want more status. We want more – Wealth, we want more sexual partners, we want more money, we want more fun experiences, you know, we want more drugs if we're taking drugs, whatever it is, that we're these machines for more. And so while it is true that we often find ourselves stuck in places of dissatisfaction despite quite a bit of material splendor. We also find ourselves stuck in places of dissatisfaction without material splendor. I mean the 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 age in which many of the philosophies, the Eastern philosophies but also Western ones um, came up in were ages where people did not have all that much but were also quite dissatisfied. So how can I distinguish the argument that human beings are built to be dissatisfied and that is a very tough thing to overcome and maybe is not even something we can overcome from the argument that liberalism or current arrangements – are generating some kind of unique dissatisfaction?
1: Such a really such a great question uh, and it really goes to the heart of what I think is at the core of liberalism, which is not – it's not the recognition that human beings are desiring machines. Uh, that's, that's been known by humanity since the first writings that we have left from the deepest antiquity. The real change is one that I think from time immemorial in a range of philosophical and religious registered regarded this aspect of human nature to be problematic, not surmountable entirely, but requiring a kind of tutoring and a moderation, and and as a result, institutions both political, social, religious, and otherwise that sought to tame this limitless desire precisely because it understood that this limitless desire had self-destructive tendencies. Those tendencies were self-destructive literally to the self, to the individual, and they were destructive to the society more broadly, because a society oriented simply toward the pursuit of endless goods would be one that would ultimately become sort of cancerous. It would become dedicated to growth without limit. What One of the key aspects of liberalism as a political philosophy, and we can say this is true also of what happens in economics, it's true of what happens in you know kind of transformations in religion and so forth, is that you could say this ancient sanction against unbridled desire is lifted. And in fact, it's redefined that this is the very nature of where human satisfaction lies is the pursuit of endless, uh, to put it in Hobbes's words, power after power that ceaseth only in death. And that society needs to be reorganized in some ways to what I've called in some of my classes to a form of institutionalized dissatisfaction. It becomes institutionalized. It becomes part of the operating system politically, socially, uh, and otherwise. And so, I think what we're seeing is in many ways the fruits of this experiment. And let's face it, we're in the midst of a several-century political experiment that we're still – assessing the findings from this experiment. It's never been tried before. And my book is, a, is an effort to say, hey, here's, a, here's a cut at where I think we, we are right now in this experiment, now seeing its sort of full realization. And the argument of the book is not that liberalism has failed because it hasn't been itself. It's failed because it has become itself. It has become fully itself. You know, paradoxically, it's failed because it's successful.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: If I understand what you're saying here because I think this is really interesting. What you're saying is that the reason liberalism has worked to the extent it has worked to create all this prosperity, to drive so many human civilizations forward to, to the degree it has, is it it aligns with some pretty fundamental parts of the human animal. It aligns with our desire to have more. It aligns with our status competitions. It, 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 it takes what we are and supercharges it, right? It's a philosophy of – it's a philosophy that is kind of in compliance with our desires and that takes our desires as profound and important and, and, and worthy of being supercharged. And what you're saying is that given the kind of species we are, that perhaps we need a governing philosophy, a social philosophy, a political philosophy – that has more room for restraint, that, that, that prizes things that push back on some of our, our core parts. And that if that means a little bit less growth, right, a little bit less growth that could hurt the planet, a little bit less of, of, of things we think we want, that in the long run, what we think we want is not always great for us or great for the world we live in. And so is that fair that there is something to be gained from a, a philosophy that treats
1: human beings and what we want with more skepticism? Well right, it's absolutely right and and again this has been known since time immemorial that this aspect of our humanity is a part of our nature. It's a deep-seated part of our nature. It's undeniably part of our nature that we you know given the opportunity we'll eat too much and we'll we'll run around and have sex with too many people we shouldn't have sex with and we'll you know we'll we'll engage in our appetites uh, as much as possible and 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 we know this as parents we know this that we have to teach our kids a kind of self-restraint and the capacity to command those desires. And so, we understand this in the kind of concrete uh, in many of our relationships. But what we have done really as a kind of civilization is said, we're going to reorient basically all of our institutions from government and politics and economics down to even the way in which we form our personal lives so that families become increasingly rare, that people don't have children because that constitutes a limitation on my liberty so, it's, this is absolutely, truly part of our human nature, but at least what was recognized, and I think this would be a Buddhist could recognize this, certainly a Christian could recognize this, an ancient Greek could recognize this, is that this is not all of our nature. That there's a higher part of our nature. In fact, they would put this in hierarchical terms and say that the higher part of our nature is not ultimately capable of being cultivated if we don't have the capacity for restraint of these, of these lower aspects of our nature and the kind of the drivenness of our appetites. And actually, let me put a finer point on this. In antiquity, this giving in to the appetite wasn't called freedom, it was called slavery it was called being enslaved to your desires it was the opposite of freedom that freedom was the condition when you had this capacity of a kind of internal as well as social restraint and so i think that you know what we have seen is a as a civilizational transformation that that it has really Gone down now to the deepest levels of our civilization—not simply political, not simply economic, but even down into, uh, you know, how we how we able to conduct our personal lives. And I think this is the source of uh, the signs of this civilizational peril we're in. Th- this puts,
2: I think, us in a very interesting and complicated space, because there's a part of me that really that really resonates to what you're saying. And you know, I, I think a pretty straightforward story is that. Religion played some of this role, um, geography, right, when you were in one place, in one community, around your family, but also around uh, people you've grown up with all, all your life who have an idea of you and have a story to tell of you. Th- there were all these things that that restrained us and that over time, for many of us, a lot of those things are being taken off. You can move anywhere. You're further from your family. Fewer and fewer people uh, are part of an organized religion and certainly are part of a religion That is willing to tell them no. Um, A lot of people are part of religions that are about telling them yes now and it's all about seeking personal fulfillment and getting rich. But there was a real downside to all of that. Somebody, oftentimes somebody quite long ago, had made choices about what it would mean to live a good life that meant a lot of people couldn't live a life that made sense for them. We had a very narrow understanding we weren't just restraining, right? We were making we were making value judgments about which impulses were worthwhile. And I don't know where you fall on some of these questions, but there were very, very. I mean, the, I think the the obvious example here is people who are gay, um, who were told by all kinds of different restraining orders in society that the way they were was unnatural. It was not reasonable, um, and they were persecuted for it. And so. On the one hand, I understand the argument that restraint can be a kind of freedom. Um, I feel that every time I'm near Oreos. <laughs> uh, I, I would feel a lot freer if I didn't feel as compelled to eat them as I do. I don't find that desire and the ability to uh, in- engage in or indulge in that desire to be a freeing impulse. But on the other hand, the institutions that did that, they really did restrict freedom and restrict human flourishing in real ways. And so you end in this place, which I think is quite complicated, of – who gets to choose? Who gets to construct the hierarchy here that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, of course. This is uh, the great question and challenge. There was a reason why these sort of ancient, let's say, philosophy and arrangements were superseded, and why it was superseded in ways that became very attractive to the large majority of the of the human population, which is precisely the the sense that many of the lines that were drawn these. Limits and barriers ended up being arbitrary, uh, ended up being cruel, ended up being overly limiting. And it's not the ambition of my book to say what we need to, go to, what we need to do is go back to the 15th century. I mean, I do have readers who actually do want that, um, and they think I'm their ally, but in this sense, I'm not. Uh, I do conclude the book by saying we have lived through this time of liberalism not to simply roll it back, but to move forward from it and to, I think, gain valuable lessons from it as well, Uh, that where restraints were too restrictive and indeed cruelly restrictive, those simply can't be reimposed. But maybe also that we have learned as a consequence of this, again, roughly 200, 300, 400 year experience, that there need to be certain kinds of lines that are drawn. And I would say this is one of the things that liberalism as a whole has a difficult time doing. It's this kind of line drawing. I just had a a critique that came out of my book uh, by Deirdre McCloskey, uh, a libertarian economist who brings up precisely this line of critique that, you know, I want to draw some kind of line about economic activity and productivity and the liberty to exercise choice in the market and that any line that you draw is going to be a limitation of liberty. Uh, and I think on the left, you have a similar kind of response that's reflected in your concern, which is that any kind of line drawing on the sort of pers- expression of personal liberty, particularly in the sexual realm, becomes problematic. But I think we can say with some candor that we have problems in both of our economic lives as well as in our sexual lives, that the kind of unbridled or kind of sort of limitless or unrestrained world is generating um a whole set of problems that require us uh, to be able to have the capacity to, dis- to discuss these. And so, when you ask me who does this line drawing, I think it has to be us. It's not going to be a king's going to ride into town and say, you know, this is what's permitted and this is what's not. This is, again, a, a very ancient kind of a teaching. Certainly, I've just been teaching Aristotle and certainly there in Aristotle, which is that this has to be embraced as a kind of a civic endeavor in a sense, it is the capacity for people to deliberate together over what constitutes the human good and how do we best achieve it, which includes the capacity to exercise what he calls self-rule. He calls he describes citizenship as ruling and being ruled in turn, which means that it's I have the capacity both to make the laws that restrain me and to live under those laws without a kind of you know, sense that those are harsh or, or unjust because I've taken part in the making of those laws. So, I conclude the book by an argument that we need to move forward learning from where we are now, not simply being nostalgic about some kind of a time we want to go back to, um, but also recognizing that there needs to be you know, a fundamental reevaluation of some of the core commitments of this liberal project. I am not a well-learned person in these ways, and, and, and so you've spent a lot more
2: time looking at political theory and social theory trends in, in other ages. Something that I sense – When I read about the 60s or about the age of the founding fathers or when I read Aristotle, is that we have a pretty impoverished discussion about what it means to live a good life or even to be a good society now compared to other times, a sort of narrow discussion about that. 60s and 70s. It was not a particularly uh, religious discussion in a lot of ways, but it, there was a quite radical discussion happening about what kind of society was a good society, um, and that seems to have been effectively transmuted. In you know, the baby boomers really fell out of it at some point into just a pretty straightforwardly consumerist society. You know, when you go back to the to, to the founding fathers all their discussion of political theory is very interwoven with discussions of what it means to live an upright life and what it means to be a good society and you know what are the natural laws that human beings should be building governments to accord to. There's something about the way in which we've lost that conversation. We've not lost an, an angry and rollicking and interesting political conversation. We've not lost a, a technological conversation. We've not lost a conversation about the future. But we seem to have just stopped talking about – what it means to be good uh, at the level and to the extent and in the societal way we, we did before. I'm not saying there's no one doing it, but but uh, it does seem impoverished to me. and and first, is that true in in your view and 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 second, is that is that is that the triumph of liberalism? is that the, is that just a byproduct of a, of a dominant ideology that says such decisions are simply to be made by the individual and and that's
1: that? Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the reason we have this impoverished discussion is because, you know, you use the sort of philosophic term, the question of the good is bracketed in liberal, in liberalism. And that's in some ways one of its core aspects, which is that you come from an age in which, you know, this is what philosophers talk about, and this is what theologians talk about. What is the good life? Uh, you know, is it the life of the practical man, of the, of the political human, of the contemplative human, of the economic human. And there's this kind of constant debate over whether, uh, you know, the life of honor or, or wealth or pleasure is the best life. We can say that there was a lot of disagreement about this question as, as we would expect there to be, but everyone understood this was the question you had to answer if you were philosophically minded. And one of the things that, in a sense, liberalism does is to say, you know what, we can't decide. There's no way for us to settle this question. Let's put it off the table and everyone will take care of this question on their own time. And what we're going to do is set up rules of the game, which everyone can pursue this on their own. And as a result, the interesting consequences, I think one that you describe, which is it's not that everyone necessarily pursues their own idea of the good, which I'm sure that lots of people do. But the question of the good is kind of lost as a viable question. And what takes its place is, I think, what we were talking about earlier, which becomes this um, institutionalized dissatisfaction, that in the place of the question of the good, what are we aiming at? What takes its place is this it, – it's what when, – when Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in the 1830s, and he subsequently wrote his great book, Democracy in America, he describes Americans as driven constantly by the spirit of restlessness – uh, which in the French was enquête, the inability to be silent or still. And this is the result of a society in which to be still is in some ways to be constantly outstripped by or passed by somebody else, by whatever measure, the constant anxiety. And you know, I, this is you know, in some ways the defining aspect of the kind of modern liberal human being. You know, I've been really privileged to teach at, at three great institutions at Princeton, at Georgetown, and now at the University of Notre Dame. And every one of my students, in a sense, has made it because they've gotten into the school of their dreams. But you've never met human beings who are more anxious and more kind of on the edge and worried about their fates and their futures precisely because they understand maybe better than anyone. Oh, You should report uh, on Congress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, I, so in other words, I think the question of the good doesn't just get philosophically bracketed. It gets practically bracketed in the daily lives of human beings in ways that, again, would have once been, in a sense, institutionalized, right, rendered into a more visible way, uh, which, again, can, can lead to debates over that question and rightful debates over that question. But it's important that that be a question. But, but let me make the, the liberal critique of this
2: argument. So, to restructure your argument in a slightly different way, but in a way that I think is true, if it's not, please interrupt me and tell me where I'm getting it wrong. But you're positing that there is a a deeper kind of happiness and satisfaction that we know, uh, uh, that we societally understand. It comes from social ties. It comes from family. It comes from working with a sense of meaning. It it, it comes from these places in our life that are held up uh, as exemplars. I mean you don't have to search very far on the internet to find people telling you that this is what will make you happy. And there have been and continue to be all kinds of experiments and, and, and freedoms in which you could live more in these ways. I mean we have had a lot of experiments with communal living. People are making choices to leave the towns they grew up in and go away and further away from their families. Uh, people could live in much bigger family units. We have bigger and bigger houses. You could put more members of a family under one roof. And yet in places where we try that, people tend to move away from it. As much as if you listen to us talk about what would make us happy, it would seem that we would be going in that direction. We don't. And, you know, you look at Israel and the Kibbutzim have have faded in importance quite a bit over the past couple of decades. Um, It's not like that took over over, over the country. Uh, And and so I I think somebody who believes and doesn't even have to be that committed to it, but believes in some of the fundamental ideas of, of liberalism in the ways that you're talking about them. Right in the ways that that we do as creatures want to be happy and we want to be satisfied and we want to be calm and we want to feel loved. That it is not that the barriers are so high. It's not that anybody's making us do these things. We could choose social arrangements that, that accord to that. And the fact that when we do, they tend to not last. The fact that, you know, I chose to move away from my family who I love dearly, but you know, and have every, I I have the means, I can move back to Irvine, California, where I'm from, but I don't, that that's telling us something really important. And, And what it's telling us is that there's something in this view of what it is that creates meaning in life and gives us a happy life that when we try it, that view turns out to be false. It's one that we like to say, but isn't true. Why should I not take that as a, Kind of killer critique of the theory. Why are the choices we make, if the end goal is a kind of deeply satisfied life, why why are the choices we make not giving us information about what truly makes us satisfied?
1: Yeah, that that's, that is the uh, uh, one of the one of the great challenges. Um, sort of reality seems to say otherwise. But at least let me challenge one of seems to me the underlying premise of the question, which treats in a way, it, in a sense, your question comes from. It comes kind of from Locke, which is, let's imagine human beings in the state of nature. uh, And in other words, in a world of infinitely free choice and see how they're going to choose. And in a world of infinitely free choice, that's going to be, in a sense, to use uh, Cass Sunstein's phrase, that's going to be the choice architecture. The choice architecture favors choice. And that, that particular choice architecture always has to leave open additional choices so that you can, in a sense, never close the choice architecture. That's the kind of the structure in which we think about the nature of choice. In that kind of a world, for instance, um, marriage as a permanent relationship until death do us part ceases to be a realistic option because in that kind of world, that would close off the kind of choice architecture of choice. And so what you're posing to me is a kind of challenge that takes up the story in Medius Race, if, if I may, uh, which takes up the story now that we have reshaped the world so that we live in this world of this particular choice architecture, that the decision is always in favor of the kind of optionality, of keeping optionality constantly open. So yes, it's true. People will move from this job to that job. They will frequently move their location. They will change their identities as we, as we see today. Uh, But that's in some ways a reflection of a deeper architecture that in some ways is invisible to us. I actually have a – I relayed an anecdote in the book that uh, led uh, Alan Wolfe in his review in Commonweal to title his review Loving the Amish. It wasn't an example that I gave to say that we should all become Amish, but I thought it highlights the way that our choice architecture can be sort of seen in the light of giving a kind of preference and the, the anecdote is that there was a book that came out a number of years ago called Rumspringa. It's about the tradition in certain Amish communities that people who have come of age or about to come of age in you know, late teens, the young people in the community, are required to live outside of the community for several years. To The word literally means in in the Swiss-German dialect, it means to run around, uh, to jump around at Rumspringen. And that after this period of time, they're required to make a choice of whether to re-enter the community now as an adult on the terms that the community demands, which is a limiting set of terms. It requires you to, in some sense, give up all of the freedom that you enjoyed for the two years in liberal society. And what the author of this book found was that on the order of, at least back then, 80 to 90% of the young people who had experienced liberal society for a year or two re-entered the Amish community, that they, that they rejoined this limiting community. And at the time that this book came out, I was teaching at Princeton University and we were discussing this, a number of uh, colleagues and myself were discussing this book and my colleagues who are deeply liberal and in every sense of the term were outraged at this uh, because they thought that this constituted some kind of, uh, that this couldn't be a reflection of true choice that young people were re-entering the community at these rates recognizing that this constituted a limitation on their freedom. And I had a colleague who said, well, we ultimately have to liberate these young people. And I said, how would you know that they're liberated? And and he said, at least half of them would not go back, was, was the measure that he suggested. So one of the things that that conversation did reveal to me was the deep premise, not that, in a sense, a liberal society values a choice that leads to a commitment, but rather to a choice that leads to near-infinite constant choiceness, if I can put it that way. Well, one of the interesting things about this is that it raises
2: a question of choice itself being a choice. And I recognize that this has just become an excellent podcast to listen to if you're high, (laughs) (laughs) um, as it so often is. But I think that it is reasonable to look at that Amish example and say that People growing up in a very closed society, given at a certain point a limited opportunity to go out in a society they don't understand necessarily, have not been raised in, have not been acculturated in, do not necessarily have deep social ties in, and you know go experience that and see if you like it better. You know there are reasons, and I'm not calling the Amish a cult here, but but there are reasons that cults work. There, are, I mean, I, I think we've seen uh, enough in human history that. Uh, people need a context and you can create a lot of different contexts in which they will adapt and and ultimately even choose that. I quite agree that liberalism itself is a context. You know, I just did a, a podcast with a guy named Anand Giridharadas, and we were talking about the ways in which, uh, actually, you talk about this in your book too. All these kids at Princeton and Harvard and Yale are going into management consulting and Wall Street, and that's a context we've created for them. For there, we could talk a lot about why that is, but I, I don't think there's anything deep in the human psyche that just loves management consulting. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it has to do with. You know, we've told people that making a lot of money and having certainty and having social status and living in one of a couple of big cities and, and on and on and on down the line are the path to a good life. And so they choose it even when the hours are crazy and it's quite far from what they initially thought they'd be doing um, when they left their college. But that said, you get into a place of very deep relativism very quickly here, right? If we can't trust the choices people are making because the choices are completely shaped by the cultures and values that they've been – uh, absorbing since childhood. Well, then how do you know when you've found something that works?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I actually discussed this in the book. Um, I mean, really one of, the, one of the core efforts of the book is to reveal to us that we also live in a sense in a closed society, uh, or let's say, as, as you put it, a society that has a context. In other words, liberalism claims, and this is kind of one of its deepest claims, that it is a neutral arbiter. Right. It simply sets up the rules of the game. You know, Often liberalism is described as basically establishing a referee and we're allowed to play the game. And the game is more or less a free-for-all as long as nobody gets hurt. And at the moment someone gets hurt, the referee steps in and uh, you know calls that person out of bounds for some period of time. But in fact, as I argue in the book, liberalism itself shapes who we are. It shapes our souls. It shapes the kinds of human beings we are. It makes us into a certain kind of a creature. And the kind of creature it makes us into, unbeknownst to us, is one that is going to value above all, as I just put it, this kind of limitless capacity of self-making and self-remaking, which means that as a consequence, we have to limit our commitments. It's a requirement of a liberal society for its people to in a sense, institutionally limit its commitments and further as a matter of what we would think of as lifestyle to limit its commitments. And so if we look at this kind of just ongoing range and this kind of feedback from my world of social science, I mean, I'm a half, half philosophy and half social scientist, which makes for an odd life, but um, but we see all of these kinds of measures that are constantly coming out of all these variety of studies that it, in some ways it's analysts can tell us, okay, the numbers of marriages are declining. The likelihood of people marrying are declining. The likelihood of people staying together uh, has seen significant decline. The likelihood of people having children is declining. The likelihood of people having uh, lifelong religious faith and affiliation is radically declining. In fact, people are leaving institutional religion uh, in droves. The measures of loneliness have been uh, increasing by orders of magnitude, and then there are these other measures that I just talked about, these kinds of signs of despair, like growing rates of suicide and opioid addiction. This is, in some ways, the predictable consequence of our particular closed society, or our society that values a certain kind of a human type. And the belief that somehow liberal society simply gives us this level field in which there's going to be no preference Exerted for the kind of human we are, I think this is the fallacy that I'm trying to dispel in the in the book. Let me let me ask a question about that because one of the things I wondered
2: about reading the book is whether whether liberalism really was liberalism as we practice it in this country right now. Let's say, really was as open to different alternatives and, and approaches as you say it is, because. It seems to me that we have constructed a form of chasing individual flourishing that is you get a lot of incoming messages at all times from advertisers, from your parents, from your school, et cetera, um, and also just from your needs as a human living in the U.S. in 2018. That a good life is one in which you make quite a bit of money. A good life is one in which you have high status. A good life is one in which you're very sexually desirable to whoever you want to be sexually desirable to. I mean I actually don't know that we have a liberalism that is as open-minded as you frame it. And so it does make me wonder if the critique isn't actually a lot more limited than it sounds like. That it's not really that what we have is a bad system but that inside the system, the messages we're giving people – about what constitutes a good life and what they should be pushing for are are bad messages. I mean, you can imagine a world where the amount of incoming messaging we get that you need this thing that you can purchase to be happy is replaced halfway by messaging that you should be of service to people, right? That you should be helping others in your community. You can imagine a world where um, all kinds of things are different. And I, I just I, I wonder if we're not just talking about the system we have with a different set of messages about what constitutes a good life and what constitutes success grafted on top of it.
1: Yeah. Actually, your, um, your counter example, it seems to me, is very instructive in which you talk about one can imagine a world in which service were placed on a higher pedestal. Uh, I, give, I get invited to give a lot of talks, you know, talking about things that we're talking about. Today and a number of these talks I give are in you know small college towns and in some of the smaller towns and small cities across the country. And if if I have time, I always like to, if I can, ask my guest to visit some of the downtown and to learn a little bit about its history. And even I always ask if I can see some of the statues in the town, which you know inevitably are kind of a certain number of presidents or maybe senators who made it big, but. Scattered throughout these towns are almost always statues to people who were great in that town, who contributed to that town, who were the people who you know helped build the libraries and the you know the concert halls, and who started you know local charitable organizations. Uh, and these were the aristocrats of, of their era. They're usually like nineteenth-century people who were the the kind of backbone, the sort of professional class of this society. And going back to the earlier part of our conversation, when I think today about what's the object or aim, if you've made it in America, and which is, you know, studying at an institution like the ones I've taught at, by large measures, what you're going to end up doing is going to live in a couple of the big metropolitan areas in our country, and working for McKinsey or Bain or one of the consulting companies and, and so forth, or a big law firm, and live the kind of as you put it, the life of money, status, uh, being sexually desirable, trying to stay healthy as long as possible. And I'm not going to condemn those things, but what I am going to say is what's striking to me, one of the consequences that strikes me of this, let's say, this liberal object or aim of what constitutes the good life means that we're no longer having those kinds of people in those kinds of places. One of the things we do is we strip mine talent this raw talent, and put it into the service of this global economic order with the promise that this will constitute the good life. And not only do we then leave these places all around the country now bereft of this what was was a fairly well-distributed kind of leadership class that could help and assist and help to form all of these different places in our country, but we are, in fact, depriving our students of the opportunity to contribute in that kind of a way to something that's not perhaps not as glorious and not as immediately financially satisfying, but which can get you a statue (laughs) in the middle of, you know, a small town in Maryland or something. Uh, So, I, I guess I would take issue that what you describe as the good life actually should satisfy us. It might be. It might be the good life. But to go back to an earlier part of our conversation, I think it's a debatable proposition and it's something that we should raise to the level, for example, on our college campuses. Is this the good life? You know How many college campuses devoted to this thing called critical thinking are challenging our students to think in a very different way about the kind of life path they'll lead in ways that they can contribute to the communities they may have come from or that they might go uh, and help to bolster?
2: So this gets to one of the points you make in the book that I found really interesting, which is the way liberalism creates a placelessness, an anti-culture I think that's true. And this way in which it unmoors us from our communities and from sort of a a broader connective tissue, I think is pretty interesting in creating an explanation of what is the mechanism by which it ends up downgrading messages of service and upgrading messages of things you can take everywhere like status and money and, and sexual desirability. So I wanted to get you to talk a little bit more about the way in which you think liberalism is at war with um, being rooted in a sense of place, being rooted in a particular culture. And I guess because I know we're coming to the end of our time here, whether or not you think that could be fixed, whether or not you think there's a version of liberalism as there was to some degree in the 40s maybe when you have a lot of these people in those statues, whether that is something that we've just done in our era or whether it really is bred into the ideology. Yeah.
1: This is um, in some ways the, the part of the book that I was most – vested in, uh, which is this discussion of the anti-culture, as I call it in that chapter. And I talk about three features of what is, I think, a core element of liberalism, which is to really eliminate these things or this the context in which most human beings have lived in, which is a kind of thick culture. And a culture is a, uh, a kind of, let's say, a, a set of practices and traditions and way of being in the world that takes place and grows organically over a long period of time. And that obviously shapes how we think, how we speak, a culture is about language, it's about memory, it's about stories and traditions and so forth. And one of the core features of liberalism, and let's go back to its origins in the, in the state of nature theory of John Locke, is to posit that human nature, if we want, really want to see human nature, we have to see it in a, um, I'm not even going to call it a place, I'm going to call it in a conceptual space that actually is placeless and timeless and relationless, and that's the state of nature. And this is what liberalism posits is the natural human being. And it posits it as a way of conceiving sort of what would we want to most sort of protect about this human nature, which is this capacity to choose and be the self-making self. But it's precisely these qualities of being placeless and timeless and relationless that in many ways becomes the object not of what we were but what we become under liberalism. In other words, it doesn't describe human beings in any particular actual time and place other than the liberal human being that we make as a result of liberal society. And as a consequence, equating this conception or orientation toward freedom, toward our liberty as a human being that doesn't have a place, that's liberated from place and that's liberated from time, particularly from generational obligations from seeing ourselves as part of a longer narrative and a longer story, is in many ways to have the consequence of the liberation of the individual who no longer necessarily cares about places in the same way. I would say that a certain degree and maybe even an extensive degree of our environmental problems today isn't just the way corporations operate and the way that, uh, you know, the oil companies operate and so forth. And that's part of it. But a lot of it is because we, the people, no longer are vested in taking care of places where we think we're going to be for a long time and where we think our children are going to be for a long time. And, you know, you can just simply move away once you've trashed a place. And in the same way, we don't have the same connection to generations that kind of culture would foster. And so that you know, we sort of think it's okay if we just give our children the inheritance of massive indebtedness, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to give your children, uh, because they're going to take care of themselves. We don't have an obligation to future generations, just as we're not obligated to past generations. I think, again, these pathologies that we see in our context, that we see in them as fundamentally disconnected from each other. We've got this environmental problem over here, and we have this problem of student debt over here. I think these are really more, much more deeply connected to and ultimately have their sources in this, I think, distorted understanding of what human nature is. And so, you conclude by asking, would cultivating a sense of placefulness and timefulness, <laughs> frankly, thoughtfulness, be an antidote to liberalism. And I would say this is one of the places where if someone's wondering what is to be done, the answer probably isn't at least in the immediate sense of complete political revolution. That thought scares me quite a lot. But the idea of building a life in a place and building a life that's connected in time with others, thinking generationally, is a really good place to start in a way living illiberally in the good sense of the term.
2: That's a good place to start and I think for us a good place to end. So let me ask you the the question that always closes this podcast, which is, what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would
1: recommend to the audience? I think I've mentioned a few of them today. Um, Alexa de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. I teach it usually at least once a year. Uh, I'm teaching it now to a group of uh, juniors here at Notre Dame and it never fails to help students see the water that they're swimming in that is otherwise invisible to them. Christopher Lash, The Revolt of the Elites, his posthumous book published in 1995 is, I think, still the best diagnosis of our current political crisis in many ways. Uh, a third book, It's a good question. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm not, I have too many books around me that I'm <laughs> forced to think about. Uh, a book about higher education that I like a lot. Anthony Kronman's book, Education's End. He's a Yale professor. And... Uh, He's somebody who's taught in their program of liberal studies, their program of, um, I think it's called their uh, concentrated studies, about a defense of the great books. And it's a wonderful book about, in particular, how the rise of the modern research university on the one hand and how the kind of rise of identity politics on the other hand have combined to kill uh, the, the core and the essence of a kind of liberal arts tradition. Uh, and while he writes from a, a much more secular and different perspective than I would probably write from, uh, for all, for that reason, it's all the more valuable because I think he can appeal across a lot of divisions in our society today in a defense of something that very few people are defending anymore, which is the liberal arts, that which makes us free. Patrick Deneen, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. All right. Thank you to Patrick Deneen. I've been uh, thinking
2: a bit about these outros, and I, I want to do just a little bit more with them. I always ask people for book recommendations, but I got all kinds of recommendations. So I got one for you today. I've been reading the book Burr, named for Aaron Burr. It's by Gore Vidal. It's a bit of historical fiction, and it's about Aaron Burr. And it, particularly if you've seen Hamilton, and see so you kind of the Hamilton lyrics ringing in your head, and and, and Burr's a villain. This is. Great. It is such a fun, interesting book. It's really quite historically accurate, actually. The, the amount of research that all did for it is great. But if Burr is sort of the evil, semi-founding father to you, it's worth reading. And also just in a moment when our politics is in a moment of brokenness, it's refreshing, I think to get a perspective on the founding period that does not view these men as gods and actually understands that in a lot of ways they were bitter and angry and messed up and were always out to gut each other. That we survived some of that, I think is a useful perspective on some of this. Thank you to Patrick Deneen for being here. Uh, As always, thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. Deser Pancho is a Vox Media podcast production and we'll be back
0: in just a couple of days.